Thanks, Nev. Um, I think Nev was a bit nonplussed when he asked me this morning, is there a special theme for today? Um, I was late sort of giving the references to him. It wasn't sort of, took me a while to understand what God was trying uh, to say to me. Um, but anyway, I was standing back and I said, well, it's fire and brimstone. And um, as I just think about this kind of sermon, fire and brimstone, it's not something that's often preached, really. But we spend a lot of time saying things like how we want people to turn to Jesus and how we want um, people to, to experience salvation and all of that. But we don't spend much time on sin and judgment, which in fact are the very impetus for salvation. There's no point being saved, this is nothing to be saved from. But God tells us there are things to be saved from. And there is a destruction. And we need to take this seriously. So, we're starting today with Genesis 18, Abraham talking to God. And this passage is actually preceded by God talking to um, Abraham and Sarah and saying that uh, Isaac was going to be born. And um, I think it's a, a very interesting way into this sermon where um, Sarah, being of uh, advanced years, um, starts laughing. Um, the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Um, shall I indeed, um, uh, shall I indeed bear a child when I'm old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, you did laugh. And this is important because in the story as it goes on, um, the uh, future son-in-laws of, of Lot, they laugh. They thought um, that the men were kidding. And they laughed. And further on in the sermon, we're going to encounter Peter, where he talks about mockers, people who mock Christianity, who mock the way of salvation. And you've got to be careful. You've got to be really careful. And so we're going to go into the story of Abraham, and, um, and he's kind of bargaining with God. But let me tell you, Abraham is very careful, very careful in the way he talks to God. And there's good reason for that. It's easy in the modern context to trample into the courts of God, demanding things of him, when all the scriptures tell us that the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. That's what we're about today. So, first of all, the men go down to check out Sodom. They are God's representatives, angels perhaps, and they are going down and 
God starts talking to Abraham and he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this is a wonderful thing because here is God, our God. He doesn't want to hide his plans from us. He doesn't want us to live as if we don't know what's happening, that we are completely um, at his mercy and he just does things randomly. No. He tells Abraham. He tells Abraham what he's going to do. Because Abraham's important. And in Abraham, all of us are blessed. So that's the first thing. We've got a God who wants to share his plans with his people because he loves his people and he wants them to know. And of course, um, then we have a God who is careful in judgment. He doesn't just write off the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He sends his representatives down to find out, well, what are they like? Maybe they're not, as, they're not so bad. He sends his men down and he checks out the whole scene and we find out what happens in that. And then we have Abraham's argument with God. The, the 50. Surely you would destroy the whole community, the whole town. What if there's 50 people here? What if there's 50 good guys? That wouldn't be fair. So God says, well, okay, sake of 50, I won't destroy it. And then Abraham, thinking cleverly and with quite another agenda behind all this, says, well, what about 45? Yep, I won't destroy it. If I can find 45 righteous people, it's a done deal. Won't do anything. And then Abraham says 40, and then 30, and then 20. And he finally gets down to 10. And I love Abraham's humility here. He says, um, um, I made the Lord not be angry. So this is his Abraham's care and his um, humility. I may the Lord not be angry, and I, so I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he says, well, we will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Do we come with that hard attitude to God when we ask for things? With humility, he ventures to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he says, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he, the God says, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham return to his place. Now, Abraham's got a secret agenda. And his secret agenda is, he doesn't care about Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't care about the 50, the 40, the 45. He cares about Lot. That's who he cares about. So he keeps negotiating down until he gets 
to what matters to him, which is Lot and his family, because Lot is his nephew. So that's what he's really negotiating about. And I think we do this too, don't we? We sort of have our secret agendas and we pray in a big global way, but we're actually interested about the one, about us. Lord, save me. Um, and God does. Okay. And so then the story goes on. Um, but before we need to, before I get into that part of it, I want to talk about Lot. What is there about Lot that is good? And who is Lot? Well, <laughs> frankly, there's not a great deal of good about Lot. Lot separates from Abraham on account of the fact that there's not enough room for their flocks. Abraham is a Middle Eastern powerful man, virtually a king. I mean, he fights against kings in battles and stuff like that. So, you know, he's got a fair bit of clout in terms of people and livestock and all of that. And Lot says to him, well, you know, it's, there's not enough land up here in the mountains for both of us. And so I want to go down to the valley. Now, you've got to understand what the valley all means. Abraham stays up in the mountains, and the mountains are associated with God. Lot goes down to the valley because that's where the richest land is, but that's also where all the Canaanites are. So what Lot's decision to leave Abraham and separate from him means is that he goes effectively into the world. He wants to make money, he wants to increase his wealth, and the place to do that is down the valley. The problem with the valley, of course, is that, well, the Canaanites live there. Not the believers in God. It's a symbol of the world. And that's where Lot wants to go. And these people are not nice people. They're bad people. And Lot, again, he's got a hidden agenda too when he talks to the, um, the men that come from God. He says, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. Because Lot is, like Abraham, a hospitable person. Remember when um, the men initially come to Abraham and to Sarah, Abraham quickly goes and gets Sarah to prepare some food and all of that and to make them um, at ease because he's hospitable. This is the Middle Eastern thing. And Lot's like that. He's like his uncle Abraham. However, Lot knows what the people are like. The reason Lot wants the people from uh, the guys from the Lord to come to into his house is because it's not safe inside him, outside. Now he doesn't actually say that, and they say, "No, we'll spend the night in the square." And of course, he is freaking out. He doesn't want them to stay in the square because they're going to find out what the people of Sodom are like. And he urges them strongly, so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepares the feast for him and baked 
and unleavened bread, and they ate. And then, of course, you get this terrible sin of the people of Sodom in wanting to um, have sexual relations with, with the men that have come, which is outrageous in any society at any time, but especially outrageous when God's involved, let me tell you, and God's people. Um, and then Lot comes up with all these strategies. He comes up with this strategy of... Um, he goes out, he shows a bit of courage, really. He goes out and he says, please, brothers, do not act wickedly. And he even offers his own daughters to them as a kind of way of fobbing them off. And they say, this one has come to us as an alien. See, he's not one of them. And they understand that. This one has come to us as an alien and already is acting like a judge. Now we'll treat you worse than them. Can you see there's spiritual warfare happening here? And Lot, in the end, is only saved because the men grab him and um, get him inside because the people are trying to break down the door. And, so, and to stop that, the, the angels um, afflict the men with blindness so they can't function. And, uh, and then the men said to Lot, whom else have you got here? I mean, this, we've come down to find out what Sodom's like and we know what Sodom's like. We've got an idea now. There's no illusions about Sodom. Um, and the men say to Lot, who else have you got here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whoever else you have in the city, bring them out of this place because we're going to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-law, sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is to destroy the city. But he appeared to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Oh, that's not going to happen. When in the morning, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, Take your wife and your two daughters and who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And then Lot still hesitates. He hesitated. So the men seize his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of the two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon them. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. So here's Lot almost getting saved against his will. God is so intent on honouring Abraham and preserving his people that even Lot, who's made every bad decision, every bad decision, God's still going to save him. Why does he save him? Because he believes in God. That's the only reason. Lot's not a good guy. Lot's not worthy of salvation. Just as you and I are. But God saves us Anyway, sometimes he saves us against ourselves. That's the kind of God we've got. He really loves us. He loves us even when we don't love him. And it's always been thus. And he tells, it, um, tells them not to, the people say, uh, the angels say, don't look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley except in the mountains unless you be swept away. 
But Lot, <laughs> Lot, but Lot said to them, I know, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favour in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, uh, which you have shown to me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Well, the mountains were good enough for Abraham, but not for Lot. So he says, now behold, this town um, is near enough for me to flee to, and it's small. Please let me escape. Is it not small? Isn't it just a little town? It's another little town in the world of the same evil, corrupt people, and that's where, I, that's where he wants to go. He doesn't even want, want to get out of there. He's addicted to the world. And God, in his mercy, he said to him, Behold, I'll grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. So all the towns of Valley are going to get wiped out except for Zoar, the small town. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the now... Yeah, okay. So God is out to save Lot in spite of himself. And he's out to save Lot's family because they're related to Lot and they're related to the family of faith. And he's going to save the people who believe in him. And so, yep, the cities get destroyed. Now you might think, and Lot's wife becomes a pillar of salt because she looks back. Um, looking back is always a bad idea in the Bible. Um, the Hebrew people yearned after the leeks and onions of Egypt once they're out in the desert. Oh, garlic, was it? Okay, leeks and garlic. That's what they, they, they wanted to turn back. And here Lot's wife turns back, she gets made into a pillar of salt. I've even got the archaeological picture of the pillar of salt that the, everyone attributes to Lot's wife. Still stands there. There you go. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and he went to the place that he had stood before the Lord and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Now, it would be good to think that Lot came good after this and... Um, he appreciated God's salvation and all of that. But, well, we're not going to go into the next part of the gruesome story, but uh, it gets more gruesome than that, let me tell you. Um, so, we've got the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's tempting, I think, and certainly traditionally it's often been treated thus, that it's because of um, their illicit sexual practice that, um, God wipes them out and that is the ostensible reason why that happens but in fact um, there's a bit more to it than that and we've got uh, three prophets that all mention Sodom and Gomorrah they give some sort of commentary one is Ezekiel one is Jesus and one is Peter let's um, have a look at Ezekiel 
write this down. Yeah. This is from Ezekiel 16, verse 49 to 50. And all these prophecies are to do with making sense of this story, really. So here's Ezekiel. This is what he says to the, uh, the people, I think, in exile. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. And he's using, he's personifying the, the town, Sodom, your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. But she did not help the poor and the needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Can you see, it's not just the sexual sin thing. It's more than that. It's they had arrogance. Abundant food. And careless ease. If there's any real danger to people like us that live under such peace, such security, this is what it is. Complacency. And that's what Ezekiel identifies as the big sin of Sodom. Their complacency, the fact that they didn't take God seriously, the fact that um, they lived at ease, they had everything they wanted, that led them, in fact, into sin. That was the way into sin. So all the time we, we are encouraged to uh, celebrate and rejoice in one Powerball, a lot of life. Lotto life is dangerous. Peace is an awesome thing. But careless arrogance and complacency, and we've got it in Australia in spades, that's the big danger. Because it makes, it tends to undermine our moral fibre. It tends to stop us fearing God. It tends to become mockers. Now, Jesus too has something to say about Sodom. He says it in Luke 10. This is, uh, we actually did it a few weeks ago, uh, where, remember when the 70 got sent out, two by two, remember that part? Well, and Jesus talks to the, um, his disciples that he sent out as they come back and they're kind of um, saying uh, how good it all was when they went out and they evangelised and they healed people and, uh, and the demons fled and all of that stuff. And um, Jesus says, uh, mm, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those that are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out, of its, uh, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. 
Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For, the miracle, if, for if the miracles that have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre, for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, another city that was close to uh, Nazareth when Jesus grew up, and to you, Capernaum, will you uh, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll be brought down to Hades. And the principle, the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So one part, or one consequence, of our evangelism and of your witness to Jesus is that, as I've said before, with that offer of salvation comes a judgment. And the judgment is for those that don't believe. God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But the one who rejects has rejected the salvation. So salvation and judgment go together all the time. So that's the second prophecy. That's Jesus talking about the meaning of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and his point is, I did all these miracles and still you don't believe. Um, one of my early Bible teachers once made the quite... Um, provocative statement that if Jesus had have been resurrected had have been crucified and resurrected in High Street, there still wouldn't be one more person who believes. Something for the Calvinists to rejoice in, perhaps. But there you go. People have been given the gospel. And people have rejected the gospel. And people mock Christianity. And in Australia, according to the census, our religious affiliation and zeal is declining. We live in what is called the last days, and the last days are apostate days. So if you're feeling a bit isolated as a Christian or a bit weird because most of your friends don't understand where you're at or think that you're religious or something like that, <laughs> rejoice in that. Because the next prophet, Peter, he's not going to pull any punches, I tell you. So, this is talking initially just about judgment. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world for the ungodly, of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. And if he re rescued, now wait for this one, righteous Lot. How's that? And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, 
For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteousness, his righteous soul tormented day after day for their lawless deeds. And he did. We know that. We've read that. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under judgment for the day of judgment. So, we might think that Lot's a bad guy or Lot hasn't done much to deserve salvation, but he was battling in his soul in this spiritual battle in the, amongst the people that he chose to live with day after day. And he was oppressed by them. He was oppressed by them. He still lived there, but he actually felt oppressed by their evil. This would have been the spirit of God working within Because when the spirit of God tells us things about the people that we live and rejects their way of living and rejects their values, then we need to be very careful. And Peter goes on. I'm just wondering how far I should go back into this. Okay, yep. No, I'm going, going for a 2 Peter 3. Mockery in the last days. And I think this is the appropriate context for this passage. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. This is Peter writing to the churches which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, your sincere mind, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of God and Saviour spoken by your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, these days, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Christianity? Ah, so old school. Anyone believe in that anymore? Where is the promise of his coming? Hey, it's been 2,000 odd years. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of all creation. Nothing's happened so far. We haven't been judged that much, have we? Depends if you live in the Ukraine, I guess. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. That's Noah's flood. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years as one day. That's why the time thing doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it's 2,020 years ago. That's, that's not the thing. God operates outside time, outside our time. 
And the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any of you to perish, but to all come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burnt up. That's a very dire prophecy, isn't it, about the end of the world? That's what the scripture says. That's what the scripture says. Does that mean that we don't care, say, about climate change if God's going to burn up the whole world anyway? No, because God has appointed us as stewards over the earth. It is our responsibility to look after this earth as well as we can. That's what we do until Jesus comes back and until the world is burnt up. So, to conclude, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the day of, of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. That's just in case you missed the part about the earth burning up. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you in all his letters, speaking in some of these things, in which some of these things are hard to understand. Paul never really got Peter. He, uh, sorry, Peter never really quite understood Paul. Uh, but he still thought he was a good guy. Which the untaught and stable distort, and the, as they do to the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Steadfastness. Steadfastness is a big thing. He who endures to the end will be saved. But you've got to endure to the end. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are serious words. And fire and brimstone is not popular in our culture, even in churches. But your judgment is real. You say it's going to happen, and I believe you. Father, help us to be people who do remain steadfast to the end, who are gutsy Christians, who do stand up for you, who do believe in you, who do reject the world, who do stand for righteousness. And Father, have mercy on us, because our only righteousness is in Jesus. And we thank you for 
the wonderful salvation that you've given us that is bigger than any of the destruction and safer and securer than anything that we could imagine or provide for ourselves. Father, help us not to be complacent. Help us to take you seriously. Help us to obey your spirit. And help us to be loyal to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank <laughs> you.